0: Turn your Bible to Psalm 73, Psalm 73, and while you're doing that, uh, I want to just give a praise to the Lord. You know the Bible talks about the just shall live by faith. How important it is, isn't it? Everything really that uh, we can expect is because of our faith in the Lord. That's what motivates us to live. That's what we live for. We live for the Lord. And how can you live for the Lord in a wicked and evil generation? It's only by faith. That's how the just survive. You know, there's an occasion in the Bible where there was a paralyzed man and some men wanted to bring this paralyzed man into a home where Jesus was in a gathering. The place was so packed out that they couldn't get through the door. So what did they decide to do? They went up on the roof. Do you remember that? They went up on the roof. They broke up the roof and they let this paralyzed man down on a rope in the presence of Jesus. What a visitation that was. The roof is busted open. This man comes lying down on a rope. He's paralyzed. And you know what Jesus says? It says in the Bible that when He saw what? Their faith. Whose faith? The faith of the men that were dropping down the paralyzed person. Helpless, hopeless. But the Lord saw the faith of the, man, of the men that would bring in this paralyzed man to Him. That's how we should come to the Lord for people. My praise is this. My wife and I have been praying for our children who aren't saved, a number of them. And one particularly uh, lives in New York City and they're looking for a house to buy and finally they had him and his wife, uh, a Brazilian girl that he married. uh, They found a place. uh, They have the deposit down or whatever it looks like they're going to be getting the home. So yesterday uh, they rode the bicycle from where they live to to the house that they were going to buy and there happened to be somebody outdoors a next door neighbor and they started conversing with him and asking questions about the neighborhood and informed it that they would be moving in and amazingly they're born again Christians um, my my son's a lawyer and uh, his wife's a lawyer they're the owners of the uh, house next door and uh, they rent a floor in their house to another couple that are born again and uh they invited my son and his wife to come to their church, and their church is a Reformed church. <laughs> so, uh, we were... When we got off the phone, I said, Michelle, did you hear what I had heard? Isn't that exciting? You never know what a day will bring forth. Well, I'm not saying that they're going to march into church this Sunday morning, but there is hope. And just another little one I'll just throw at you, too. Again, another one of my children... I went down to visit them last week, and I've been looking for a church near my daughter, who I think is the closest one to probably going to one uh, out of kind of conviction. And uh, there was one called New Hyde Park. My daughter and her husband live in Garden City, Long Island. And I looked it up, and I said, wow, was it really that close? And come to find out, I went over there for the men's breakfast. And they're, they're another Reformed church. They love the Lord. They're filled with the Spirit of God, and and they just teach the doctrines that we all we all so much love. And it turns out that they're 1.2 miles away. I actually was going to walk to the Bible study, but I was a little behind time, so I had to take my car. So you just never know um, what the Lord can do. So let let's keep praying for our loved ones. Uh, you know, we even said, Lord, if it just send somebody into their life, somebody that they work with, or somebody that they uh, associate with, or whoever, someone that gets converted. And that's our hopes that the Lord is going to work in our children. And we have hopefully the same hope that you have for your children, for your loved ones. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. Let's keep praying. Let's keep seeking the Lord. So let's get to Psalm 73 and let me just give you a few words in preparation for this psalm. This psalm is written by uh, Asaph who happens to be a Levite that was a priestly tribe. He was the chief musician in the sanctuary. And he likely was the composer of this psalm who lived under Babylonish captivity. In other words, Israel was exiled and this psalm was written from that standpoint when the children of Israel, the children of God, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament were in a foreign country in captivity. And through this psalm, he was trying to console the Israelites who were in bondage, who were greatly distressed and miserable because of their outward circumstances. And I think you could probably relate to that in some way or another. The psalmist, we will see, has misgivings about God's government. He has a strong temptation to think that the Israel of God, the people of God that is, are no happier than other people. And that God is no kinder than to them than He is to us. So, the psalmist is writing from a distorted standpoint, which is reality. We can sometimes get ourselves into a distorted state of mind, and spiritually so, that our prayers, our thoughts are askew, and we miss the mark. Let's read together, or let me read with you. Or to you, rather. Psalm 73, verses 1 to 17. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, now this is where the psalmist saying, I have fallen out of that category of being one who's pure in heart. And remember, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The psalmist is confessing here, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High God? Notice the questioning here of the integrity of God. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I... Kept my heart clean. In other words, they've got the advantage over me. Here I am, a sacrificial person believing in God, and look what they have compared to what, what I've got. Off in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations... Of your children. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a weird task. Until I went, until I went, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, then I discerned their end. may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. If there's one verse that I want to pick out out of the whole verses that we read, I'd like to pick on verse 2. Which said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Our brother had read in the Psalms, Psalm 28, where the psalmist pleads with God and he says, Lord, be not thou silent to me. Lest if I be silent, I become like them that go down to the pit. Would that be drastic or what? For someone who's classified as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to become like them that go down to the pit. The title of this sermon is: Are you in danger of committing adultery with your eyes? Is that a possibility? are you committing adultery with your eyes? What do I mean by this? Here the psalmist Asaph, it's all about his observations. What he's seeing out there that is irritating him, that is making him jealous and envious of what they are enjoying and what he is being deprived of. How ironic... Yes, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Yet we're in danger. We're always in danger zone in the world. We're on a battlefield. We have the enemy always lurking. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. you and I are. We're in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. Therefore, there's trial, there's temptations and there's difficulties. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The Scripture does talk about believers slipping. About believers drifting. It can happen... As a matter of fact, you might stop and ask yourself the question, am I drifting? Am I slipping? One thing the Bible encourages us to have is to have sure feet. We get the imagery in the Bible about the sure-footed animals that would be able to climb those difficult places when they would go up the mountain sides and go up these high cliffs. They were able to stay steady on their route. But sometimes there are those animals that don't have the same sure-footedness and can go into places where they could easily slip. And so you and I too have the tendency of possibly slipping. When the author of Hebrews writes to the Hebrews, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, to take heed to the truth of the gospel of the doctrine, lest you possibly slip away. Therefore, we ought to give them more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, unless we, one translation has it, drift away. Drifting away. That could have been a title to this sermon. Drifting away. We've got a lot to, to be able to stay steady. We have no excuses. As a matter of fact, it tells us in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And that we have escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world through lust. How? By faith we have escaped that. But still, we can be on a slippery slope I think that's the word that Donald Trump has been using lately, that the slippery slope, that slide that could just start with a little slip, and before you know it, you're down the slip and you're down down the bottom. This name came up in our uh, Sunday school this morning. Not an unfamiliar name to probably most of you here. His name is Josh Harris. Uh, if you've been watching at all uh, anything uh, Christian on the Internet, you would likely come across uh, the... Uh, and I'll, I'll let him speak for himself in a letter that he first wrote. I guess he posted it on Instagram about himself. And I'm sure this wasn't a total surprise to a number of people, especially those that were in his inner circle. But we're talking about a man that uh, had been a pastor for many years. A pastor in a very, I would say, a very sound denomination. Surrounded by good men. Um, sound in doctrine. um had a wonderful upbringing. His dad uh, had a lot to do with homeschooling in the early days and, and brought his son up. And his son wrote some books at a very young age that caught fire and was uh, circulated uh, rampantly around the Christian world. His name's Josh Harrison. These are his words. He says, "...I'm learning that no group has that market cornered on grace." I'm learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. In other words, there's no one, no body of people that can claim exclusivity to the truth. Which seems to open up the door for other possibilities. Let me read on. He says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Now listen, this is a pastor who's been a pastor for 20-odd years, who's been leading a a renowned congregation, I believe in Maryland, and has had a wonderful reputation as a godly man with a family and Besides that, he did divorce, divorce his wife after 22 year, years just recently. He goes on to say, I have lived in repentance. He quotes Martin Luther who says that a believer's life should be a life of repentance. Amen to that. Unfortunately, he takes this in a wrong way. He goes on to say, and I have lived in repentance for the past several years. Repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, in my approach to parenting, just to name a few. But I specifically want to add to the list now, it is to the LGBTQ community. I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books, and as a pastor, regard, pastor regarding sexuality. I regret, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church. And I think by marriage equality means their, uh, equality that same-sex couples ought to have in their marriage as compared to a heterosexual couple in the regard of the standing of marriage status. For not affirming you in your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry, I hope you can forgive me. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about this, but my point is this. Standing on a slippery path, having eyes of adultery and the tendency that could result from it. You know what this really is saying? What this really is have eliminated the Bible. Really? Isn't that right? Someone said it this way. If the Bible isn't true, then nothing matters. But if the Bible is true, then nothing else matters. Let me repeat that. If the Bible isn't true, then nothing matters. But if the Bible is true, nothing else Matters, And one of the things that we as believers in the Lord Jesus should be able to have a sure footing is because of where the Word of God places us. My confidence is not in myself. It's not the way I think. It's what God gives to me from His Word. And a believer has a new nature. If you don't have a new nature, if you're not born again, if you don't have Christ in your life, the Bible is muted to you. It has no significance. There's no reality for you. Whereas to the believer, the Bible is dynamite. It's powerful. It's the living Word. It creates beauty in us. It generates life in us. It gives us desires to want to follow Him. Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is it that makes you live? What is fueling your life? For the believer, this is it, the Word of God. That's what feeds my hungry soul. That's what fills my tank so I can live for Him. And of course, I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. I have the brethren and sisters to encourage my heart. I have a prayer life with God that I can commune with the living God, who's over all things, to the church. Man, we are not in any way deprived. We cannot make excuses. God has given us everything that we could possibly have to keep us sure so that we don't have to have those adulterous eyes and see things that might entice us away from the things of the Lord. You know, the Bible talks about becoming a Christian is like entering into a marriage. You and I as believers have been betrothed. That's the word the Scriptures use. Paul says, I have betrothed you to one husband, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. We've betrothed him. Now, betrothal in the, in, in the Jewish language in the first century would have meant that when you were betrothed, you were in essence married for what you had on the full route. We would consider it like an engagement, but it's beyond even engagement. It's a full 100% commitment to one another. So when Paul says, I have betrothed you to the Lord Jesus, that's the category that we are now placed in. And we're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the, when the betrothal stage gives way to the marital stage, when we are brought into the presence of the King, and then the marriage ceremony and the marriage banquet feast is set for the children of God. So we are those virgins, the five wise virgins that have oil in our lamps, and we're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And we should be listening for that voice. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. I hope we have that spirit of looking forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be married to the Lord, betrothed to Him, is is loyalty. It means commitment. You're in a love relationship. The psalmist says, why are, we in a, why are we in a love relationship? Because the Scripture says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And he goes on to say about that amazing cross as he surveys it. And if you've ever surveyed the cross and beheld the Lamb of God as the One who died in your room instead, you too would be able to say like the hymn writer, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Can you say amen to that? It demands my heart, my life, my all. How can I be any different than loyal to the One who loved me unto death, even the death of the cross? I tell Michelle this morning, I had a weird dream last night. I had a dream that I went to hell. And I'm telling you, it really shook my world. I dreamt that I was going, and maybe I'm uh, relishing this a bit, but I I felt like I was going in a deep, dark hole that was never-ending. Just surrounded with blackness and darkness, with no one to... No one to have relief from, no, no chance of escaping this destiny that I was a part of at the time. And I woke up out of my dream. And I said, "Wow, I don't know if I realize how serious it is to go to hell." Amen. And man, did that shake me up! Like, wow, Whew, that is something else. One, one uh, writer says. About hell, tis the worm that never dieth, gnawing at my bosom's core. Is there, is there no deliverance? Echo answers, nevermore. Echo answers, nevermore. The Gospel saves people from hell. And if hell doesn't shake your world, if hell doesn't become a reality to you, guess what? When you survey that wondrous cross, you're going to pass by and say it's nothing to me. But when your world has been shaken and you have come to reality of the kind of God that we have to do with, that He's a holy, sin-hating God, and the only way to be freed from the bondage of our sin and from the penalty of our sins is by beholding the Lamb of God and by faith, believing on Him, embracing Him and trusting Him as one's Lord and Savior. Survey that wondrous cross if you're not a believer Ask the Lord to open your eyes and to give you faith. You know, as ones that are betrothed to the Lord, and I want to say in a marriage state, we're expected to, like we do when we say a vow in a wedding, unto you and to you only will I be faithful. I will be with you. I will serve you. Until the day of my death in sickness and in health, for good or for bad. And so it should be with us towards the Lord. But the psalmist says, God is good to Israel, but as for me, as for me, my feet, almost, praise God, almost. You know, we don't have to fear. Our our salvation is not dependent on my sanctification. My salvation is dependent on my justification. It's hoped and expected that our sanctification, that is the life that we live after receiving Christ, would harmonize, would complement the fact that I have been delivered from a horrible pit. That I have been delivered from judgment that should have been mine, that Jesus bore on the cross. I should be exhibiting that in my life and show signs of gratitude to the Lord Himself. Oh, how we need to renew our vows. How we need to believe truly that God is good. Maybe that's where they get that expression. God is good. What do you say to that? All the time. God is good all the time. God all the time. God is good to the Israel of God, to the people of God. We have to trust that and believe in that. This is where faith will bring us. But oftentimes we get shaky. Um, let's face it, we are to a degree all capable of being schizophrenic. What do I mean by that? We have two natures. The old man has not been eliminated from me or you, even as Christians. I bet you, like me, have thoughts about the past. Certain things, maybe going back to them in history, or something that you see that reminds you of something that you enjoyed in your sinful era. Or you're enticed by something out there that's drawing your affections away from the Lord into that. That's why the Bible says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Yes, there is that struggle. If you don't have a struggle, don't think of yourself as a believer. And I'm telling you that out of love and honesty to you. If you don't have a struggle in your life, a struggle to want to live righteously and godly in this world, at the same time, feel the tug of Satan yanking on your feet and wanting to bring you back into the ways of the world, then you don't know the Gospel. You don't know the Lord. Because there are those struggles that a genuine believer will have. Some more and some less. It's been oversimplified, I agree, but it's, I think could serve our purposes by me mentioning this. It's like someone has said, you have two dogs. They're equal in size and in power. One's a black dog, one's a white dog, or purple and green, whatever you want to say. One is different than the other one. And you say to the, to the black dog, Sick him, and the black dog will sick the white dog. But if you say to the white dog, sick him, the white dog will sick the black dog. Well, we have two natures. What nature are we serving? What nature are we saying, go for it, love the Lord, serve Him with all your heart, and give your life for Him? That's the sickem side that we want to lean on in our new nature. Yeah, what are these things here, by the way? Uh, this is an illustration that I thought of during the week. You know, hopefully everybody, even the youngest in this room, can understand this. This is like us in the world. And when I throw this ball up, it comes down, right? Why? Because of gravity. You know, when you're not saved, this is where you're at, basically. You're stuck on the world. This is where your life operates. Everything, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's how you function. When you become a believer, He raises up the poor out of the dust. He lifts up the beggar out of the dunghill and sets them among princes. We've been raised up. To what, for what purpose? Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. We all, as believers, feel the gravity pull this way. We can get up, but we're going to come down. The more worldly we are, the easier it's going to be for us to land there. But, this one, look at that one. That seems to stay up there a little longer. And away it goes. I thought of maybe buying a helium balloon, but, I don't want to be teaching or preaching perfectionism. (laughs) Because it would stay up there in the heavenlies and I would be disillusioning you if I proposed that to you. The fact is we are like that balloon. We have been given the ability to now enter into the heavenlies and to have spiritual communion with God. It still feels the tug of gravity. but Not as great. And I can say that. One of my struggles was... Prior to my conversion, I was like, and I started reading the Bible for a couple of years and more, I said, man, I can never live like the Bible says I'm supposed to live. I said, this book's going to be for the priests, the ministers. I'm not in this league. But you know, when God, miraculously, like anyone else that's saved, it's a miracle when God saved me, all of a sudden my, um, my affections are on things above. And not so much on things on the earth. Like the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What a difference that makes. You see, our salvation is secure. We cannot lose that, praise God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We've been predestinated according to His purposes, and our seat is reserved for us in heaven, Peter says. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, you've got a hope and assurance that you will be there. Peter said, reserved in heaven for you. That place that's incorruptible and undefiled. That's what we have ahead of us. But, even though salvation is secure, our faith needs nourishment. Nourishment. We all need to be hungry. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Ask God to give you a hunger, a thirst for the things of God. The psalmist ends up concluding because of where he ends up going. And that is verse 17. I'll get to that in a second. But I want to say this. If you are starving spiritually, as a believer, if you're starving spiritually, you'll fill your belly with an artificial substance that will seem to fill the void. You know, I've read about Josh Harris. I don't know. Did he know the Lord? Did he know do, do, Did he know the Lord? Does he know the Lord? Is he in a backslidden state? I don't know. The Lord knows the hearts of all men. I mean, something like this. I don't know if you, some of you, are, how long ago, I, remember, I don't remember when this happened. But remember Pat Boone, uh, a professing Christian, he ended up going back into very worldly ways with a hard rock and he started wearing all the apparel of the world and he thought that's what he should be. And he, was, he just got all mixed up, I, I would say. I, I think it's the adulterous eyes that, uh, that, that any of us can fall into. And what, what makes us want to have adulterous eyes? Because we're not being fully satisfied ourselves with the Lord, number one, And maybe there are other things too that can contribute to our slipping away. When fellowship is not good for you in in your home church. Maybe there's a feud. Maybe you have a difficulty with a fellow Christian. Maybe your pastor has a Josh Harris experience. That can rock your world too, I would think. I know it would if one of you had to read something like this to the congregation. It would rattle my cage. But... I want to re- remind myself I have a sure footage. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be be able to what stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. All to stand, to stand. The Bible says see that you fall not out by the way. Be sure that you are on a level path so that you don't like a lame person get detoured in a sideline direction. Maybe Peter would be an example of that. Peter said boldly when he was asked, Do you know the man? That's the man that is in front of the high priest that's being interrogated, that everybody's against. Are you on his side? Do you know him? Peter's gut reaction was, I don't know the man. Asked again and again and each time, I don't know the man. And you remember, after the last time he said, "I don't know the man," there happened to be a door, a bit of jar, where Jesus was visibly noticed, and where Peter was noticed by the Lord. And as soon as Peter says, "I know not the man," it says what the Lord looked at Peter." That look made such a difference instantly. And it says he went out, and what did he do? He wept bitterly bitterly. Why? Because there's the Lord of glory. There's the Prince of life. There's the one that captured my heart. There's the one that I said by the Father's revelation to me that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here I am denying Him before men. He went out and wept bitterly. That's why I think Paul talks about not leaving your first faith. In the book of Revelation to the Ephesians, it says to them another rebuke, you have left your first love. This is how slipping occurs. This is how we can get away from our beloved and our faithful fidelity to Him. is by letting other things come in our life. Filling our bellies with an artificial substance that will fill the void. On the other hand, in contrast, would be Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, by transgression, fell. Judas Iscariot fell out of the faith. Peter fell away from the faith. One was temporary with Peter. One was permanent with Judas. Judas wasn't of the faith anyway in the beginning, but he fell from what he claimed to be a part of. That's what real apostasy is. It's an abandonment of that which one professed to have had previously. Praise God, if you're a believer, you cannot fall out of grace. You can fall from grace and be distracted by the things of the world. Keep yourself in the love of God. So how then do we avoid committing adultery with our eyes? It all has to do with focus, where our attention is is given. And I think it all comes from a lack of satisfaction. Is Jesus enough for you? Is He enough for me? Or do I want something more? When God rained down manna from heaven, that was a gift from God. That was angels' food to feed them. But along the way, they got discouraged. And they decided that they were going to change the manna. They were going to mix it with other ingredients and try to change the flavor of the manner that God had designed for them to be partaking of. And sometimes that's what we want to do. We want to sort of maybe turn Jesus into, into some kind of a rubberized Jesus where we can twist Him and turn Him and, and, and sort of make Him accommodate me rather than me accommodate the Lord of glory in the way He truly is and what does, does He expect from me as a child of God. We don't set the uh, we don't set the, the regulations and try to make Jesus into our own image, but rather it's the other way around. So I would say, number one, here are some of the closing remarks I want to make in regard to helping us, preventing us from slipping. And this this psalm, of course, and there's so many details. I just quickly want to make, make, I gotta mention a couple of them here at least. These were the things that his adulterous eye caught about them. He mentions the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs. They're not in trouble. They always are at ease. They increase in riches. They eat all that anyone could want to have. In other words, they're prospering. And I'm not. The psalmist is uncomfortable with his state. And a believer can get like that. Can get like that. Maybe you've never experienced it, and praise God if you haven't. Maybe you have come to those territories that I'm talking about where you do feel like, wow, I am in danger. I am choosing the wrong company whom I'm associating with. I'm barking up the wrong tree. I'm thinking I can find satisfaction in this and that. And it's really not going to bring me that satisfaction. Mick Jagger told you that. I can't get no satisfaction. You'll try and try and try, but you're not going to get it. Jesus is the only satisfactory one for the hungry soul. When you know Him, you will love Him. The psalmist has all these complaints to make about his enviousness of the ungodly. Until, praise the Lord, verse 17. Until, I love that word, until. And if you're in the first 16 verses, pray for an until in your life. Pray that this would be the stopping point and starting point for an entrance into the sanctuary. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And he goes on to say, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? and there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, He did a toll 180. He reversed the whole thing. His eyes that wanted to commit adultery saying, Lord, my eyes are fixed on You. That's where my strength comes. That's where my joy comes from. That's the peace that I can truly have if my eye is on the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to do with our focus, brothers and sisters. Keep yourself in the love of God. To cleave to the Lord, a word that's used in the book of Acts after Paul ministered the gospel to, to believers and had to leave from them. What does he say? I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Cleave to the Lord. Third, turn your eyes. Upon Jesus. I had to say to somebody last night, ministering to a couple over the phone, I said, Get your eyes off yourself. Don't look to me. Don't look to man. Look to the Lord. This is not a fiction. I always try to remind myself, Jesus is at the right hand of God. I want to have eyes like Stephen. When he lifted up his eyes, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Who can apprehend that? Or comprehend that, I should say. It's the one that has spiritual vision. And that's what Paul prays in his prayers. That the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Oh man, if we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, those winds and those waves, they're not going to shake us. We'll be able to stand because our eyes on Him, and the one whose eyes I'm fixed upon, said to Peter, Yes, Peter, Come. Peter says, Lord, if it be you, bid me come unto you. And the Lord said, come. And if the Lord says, come, then we can be sure that He's going to bring us to the green pastures. He's going to keep us over those tumultuous seas and bring us to the still waters. Fourth, look unto the rock when you're Fifth, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Stay close to Jesus. He is in the boat. Oh, me of little faith? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I think we have a bit of atheism about us, all of us to some degree. There is some unbelief in our hearts, but I want to reduce that more and more by replacing it with my love for the Lord, my walk of faith, my, my, the blessings that I get from the reading of the Word that will sustain me and keep me. And it's also good to know that there's a Paul in the boat. Man, that hit me. Acts chapter 27. They're about to shipwreck. Their lives are on the line. They're not going to make it. Nothing looks positive here. But the angel of the Lord spoke to Paul and he said, I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. It's nice when you can look to someone who has faith that you may not be up to spiritually that says we can do it by faith in the Lord. Trust Him. Trust His Word. That's the blessing of the church, brothers and sisters. That's the blessing that we can get from the preaching and the reading of the Word of God, that it can bolster us and give us that confidence and faith that we may be lacking. Isolationism opens a door to unwelcome guests. The most dangerous place you can go is to isolate yourself. You know why? Because no one's going to bother you. And that's what you want. You don't want anybody to bother you. Not that we should be bothering each other. Don't misunderstand me. That's the last thing I want to do would be a pain to you. But I do want to be a blessing to you and I think hopefully you want to be a blessing to me. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. How we need one another. You know, God didn't just save us individually and independently. He saved us with others. Together we are saved. And we share this life being partakers of the divine nature. So I want to be around people that I can share my life with who are partakers of that divine nature. And what a difference that will make. Those adulterous eyes, they're going to they're not exist. They're going to be shut. They're going to be fixed in a different direction but those eyes are going to be filled with the Lord of glory. And I do believe God. And I know that He can make this true for each of us. And maybe there's somebody slipping here. Or if you think you're standing, the Bible says, take heed, lest you fall. Man, I don't want to come across like... You you poor souls down there, you don't know what I got. I'm on top of the world. I got the Lord on my side, and it's easy peasy for me. No, no, no. We're on the same battlefield. I'm fighting the same battles that you're fighting, and I know that I could fall tomorrow. I could be like David up on the piazza and see something that's going to take me away. It doesn't take much. There's still a part of us that can be activated that we try to keep deactivated. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they're after us. You and I. To trip us up so that we will not get into the sanctuary. That's where it comes from, brothers and sisters. Until I went into the sanctuary. Underline that. Put that on a wall in your house. Put it in your in, in your office. Put it in your bathroom on your bathtub shower wall until I entered into the sanctuary. What a difference that makes. You can turn your back on the Lord. You can walk in all kinds of directions. And you can say, I don't know about God. That's what people tell me. Right. Because you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So, get to that place so that you can say, yes, my heart and my flesh fails. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. That's the one that I want to be fully loyal to because He's the one that gave His life for me. The least I can do is say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Let's close in prayer.